I've entitled this uh, Jesus trial as the confrontation with the sin of Judas. And obviously in the we've talked that in the trial it's really not Jesus on trial because Pilate has said there is no trial to be had. But I think we often demonize Judas as to imagine that the sin that Christ addresses is something less than the sin of Judas. That is that, oh, well, Judas, is, his sin is beyond the pale. But is human wickedness ever more powerful than God's redemption? Isn't the very point of the evil of Judas, as it's depicted in the New Testament, that this betrayal unto death is directly confronted in the death it brings about. Let me tell you the scripture and be looking it up here. We're going to look at the trial again in a brief uh, phrase. John 19 uh, verses 8 to 12. And the argument I want to make <clears throat> is that it is precisely the sin of Judas that is addressed by the death of Christ. Further, the sin of Judas is shared by the leading Jews, by the high priests. It's shared by the Roman authorities, and even by the apostles themselves. Judas is from among the apostles. The sin of Judas, in other words, I believe is the sin Christ came to confront. Let's read the passage. This is the, the trial and the phrase that we're going to look at. It has to do with the greatest sin. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So as I've already said, is that the Pilate is going to say there's no case to be made. There's no trial to be had. I think we can still refer to it as a trial because what's on trial here, who's, you know, it's really humanity that's on trial. The trial of Jesus, I believe, is theologically significant. Not as a trial in which men will make a pronouncement you know, about Jesus or about God. But it's a trial because what men would do to God, God in the flesh, God incarnate, would be to deliver him to death. To deliver him to death is the phrase that Jesus will use that gets repeated. And Jesus pronounces those who have delivered him to Pilate, they are more guilty than Pilate or Rome or the, even the Gentile world represented by that. 
you know, Pilate, the Gentiles, they may be acting in ignorance. And Jesus, he, you know, he who delivered me uh, is referencing whom? Well, it's the chief priests. It's the leading Jews. And of course, it's Judas that are guilty of the sin of handing Jesus over. And the word here is, I think, of theological significance. It's the, the word that we translate in your, it may be delivered or it may be handed over. And it will get repeated again and again in the New Testament. And so a bit of what I want to do is to trace this word because there's several things that are said about it. First of all, it encompasses the ultimate sin, the culminating point of sin in the trial, right? Here's the greatest sin. And we'll see that the weight of guilt is laid at the feet of Judas, and the leading Jews. As we go through the text, we realize this delivering or handing over of Jesus, though, certainly it includes Pilate, Rome, the Gentiles. Uh, It will even include Satan, right? The Jews and Satan, that Satan himself possesses Judas. All these are involved in the delivering up of Jesus unto death. John equates this delivering up with darkness, with Satan, You know, when Satan enters into Judas at the Last Supper. And ultimately, in the cleansing of the apostles' feet. You remember the story where he washes their feet? They're talking about the betrayer. I think the thing that he is doing is addressing the Judas in all of them. Jesus is delivered over to the Gentiles or Romans through the Jews by means of an apostle, Judas. Such that every class of human, those who are closest to Jesus, those who are, we might think, most distant, are involved in this deliverance. Darkness, you know, in John, sin, death, uncleanness, evil. They are encompassed in the movement which delivers Jesus unto death. But it's Judas that starts the chain, right? of delivering or handing over. He hands in Mark 4 and John, he hands over Jesus to the Jews, who in their turn, turn him, they bind him and led him away. And the same phrase gets used again and again. They handed him over to Pilate, the governor, Matthew 27. The Jews picture their handing him over as a self-evident sign of guilt. They say to Pilate, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over to you. At the end of the trial, Pilate will, of course, hand Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. But it's Judas that is the betrayer. His very identity is marked, you know, they go forever after we're going to refer to Jesus as the one, or to, to Judas rather, as the one who betrayed Jesus. Uh, Matthew 10, Mark 3, 19, they both say Judas Iscariot who handed him over. Um, and once Jesus is delivered into the hands of men, into the hands of the high priests, into the hands of the Gentiles, the momentum toward the crucifixion is a foregone conclusion. This ball is not going to be stopped from rolling. 
So the danger with Judas is that we imagine his sin because it's so abhorrent, so wicked, is beyond the possibility of forgiveness and redemption. What we see in the New Testament is that this sin of delivering Jesus up to death is certainly abhorrent, wicked, it's the culminating point of sin, it's the height of evil, but it is a sin that is shared by many. More strongly, I think we can say that this sin of handing over is at the very heart of all sin. It is the very substance of sin which Jesus has come to address. And of course, the grand irony here is that by scapegoating Jesus, Judas, rather, by saying, oh, well, Judas, he's really bad, you know. Uh, but that's the very way in which we're in danger of sharing in the sin of Judas. It's like the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, the tax collector beats his breast and says, I'm unworthy. The Pharisee prays, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like the tax collector. And the story goes, you know, well, when the, the preacher preached on that, the elder gets up and prays, Lord, we thank you we're not like that Pharisee. That misses the, the point of the story. And I think when we demonize Judas, or in some way picture his sin as isolated from our capacities to sin, it does the same thing. It misses the point of the story. If we remove ourselves from the possibility of the worst of sin, we assume this is something of which maybe we're incapable. Maybe we're already guilty of the possibility. That's the danger, I'm afraid. And so we, we can see this in the two foot washing scenes in John. There is a contrast that's drawn, first of all, between Judas in the scene. Remember Judas and Mary. Mary takes a pound of very costly pure perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house, it says, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, this is from John 3 to 8, John 12, rather, uh, verses 3 to 8. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The scene, of course, anticipates the cross. That Jesus was not merely anointed at Bethany, He's symbolically embalmed, right? She's preparing for my burial, Jesus says. And as Jesus describes the scene, leave her alone. You know, that for the, she's keeping it for the day of my burial. And it says the whole house is filled with the fragrance. Maybe it's the house is sort of like the world being impacted by the death of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew, 
I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be also be spoken in memory of her. Now, that's John and Matthew, but let's go to another version in Mark. Same scene, same woman. It says, some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Let's go to Matthew 26, 68. It says specifically in the plural, the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. The disciples in general are pictured as having the same thought as Judas. In fact, Judas would prevent this scene in a very similar way that Peter would prevent Jesus from going up to Jerusalem and die. You remember when Jesus says, I have to go into Jerusalem and die, and Peter says, no, Lord. And Mary in this scene is clearly taking the role that Jesus has taken just previous to this in washing the disciples' feet. Hers is a self-sacrifice in which nothing is held back. Peter, Judas, the disciples, perhaps all of them, are among those who question the extravagance, the fact that everything is poured out for Jesus. The scene at the Last Supper when Jesus announces that the betrayer is among them, it's at another foot washing. All of the apostles assume, you know, they start asking, wait a minute, Lord, the betrayer is among us. Is it me? Am I the one? Is it him? You know, they begin to point or they begin to ask, who is this? They, it says that they were deeply grieved. They begin to ask and say, surely not I, Lord. And Judas is singled out at this point. But this great sinner... This one who sums up the worst sort of sin as the betrayer is so much part of the apostolic band that they cannot distinguish him. It's in conjunction with this disclosure disclosure, that then Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Peter, you know, protests... You know, don't, if, I don't want you washing my feet. I don't want you being acting like a slave, Jesus, because that's really the position he's taking. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter insists then, oh, well, then give me a complete bath. And Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And of course, there's a double entendre here, you know, that it's the not all of you. Well, you are not completely clean, and the group, of course, is not completely clean. The holy clean still need to have their feet washed, and what they are washed of, the the uncleanness, which seems to reside among them, I believe is represented by Judas. That's the specific conversation. Jesus cleanses their feet. They are wholly clean, yet they will have to continue in the service which Jesus renders so that they can remain clean. 
His service, what it represents, I believe, addresses the Judas orientation of which they are all in need of cleansing. What is the sin of Judas from which they need cleansing? Well, they would hold something back. We see that, you know, ultimately they would not sacrifice everything. They would not do what Mary did and extravagantly pour out this, you know, her wealth. They will, and what this means is they will sacrifice Jesus rather than sacrifice themselves. This is the sin of Judas. But this is the sin of Cain. This is the sin of Joseph's brothers. This is the sin, you know, of the two women before Solomon, the one who says, well, let's cut the baby in two. The uncleanness of Judas as it exists among all the apostles, I believe is in this story, Peter and Judas, they become the center of the story from this point on. Peter's denial of Christ indicates a failure, not simply morally like that of Jesus, but it's a similar failure of comprehension. All of the apostles are included in the foot washing. And Peter's and Judas's failure then, I think that's what you know, John is going to unfold their stories from here, the specific element which they both fail to get maybe they're at different ends of the spectrum of this failure, is that Jesus intends the foot washing to symbolize or foreshadow his death, right? What is the lesson? Well, at one level, it's you need to serve one another. They got that. Well, okay, we need to serve one another. But the element they do not get is the self-sacrifice connected to death. The threat of death, of course, has been hanging over them. Since they went to Bethany, where the washing, you know, with Mary takes place, they raise, you know, Jesus raises Lazarus, and it's at that point that Thomas, had, you know, they, they were afraid to go that close to Jerusalem, because the Jews are already seeking to kill Jesus, and Thomas, in that kind of fatalistic fashion, says, well, let's just go up and die with him. They're facing death, and and death is sort of hanging throughout the air. Uh, And that, I think, the the idea that Jesus is going to die in Jerusalem is still, though, incomprehensible to them. And the way that that's linked to self-sacrificial service is incomprehensible to them. Um, And so in this, you know, we see Peter blocking Jesus. No, you you can't go up to, to Jerusalem to die. Judas would bargain his way out of going up to Jerusalem to die. But they are both consistently uncomprehending. They're unwilling to grasp what it might mean for Jesus, let alone themselves, and that's what it ultimately comes down to, to take up their cross. After the foot washing, Peter seems to eager, he's eager to press this point and to show that he's made the connection. He says... Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And we know from Peter's actions at the arrest of Jesus, he would, right? He would lay down his life for Jesus. But not in the way that Jesus means. What Peter means is, 
He's willing to take out a sword and whack off a few ears and die in a blaze of glory. But of course, that's not the self-sacrificial sort of death that Jesus is talking about. Peter's words parallel. They're the same words that Jesus had used earlier. When in John 10, he says, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Peter, Jesus answers Peter by repeating his words. Will you, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? You know, you can kind of hear the sarcasm. And Peter claims, you know, it's a reversal, really, of the shepherd sheep claim that Jesus says, well, the, the hired hand is the one who will abandon the sheep. When the wolf comes, he's going to take off running. Well, we know that Peter's more of a hired hand at this point than he is a good shepherd. And John is going to go on and illustrate how to be a good shepherd. So, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? My point here is that Peter and Judas are not so far from one another. And of course, the point of Jesus' long association with the disciples is to directly confront and overcome the sin that exists among them that is personified, perhaps, in Judas. Um, but it's Judas is never isolated. He's not unique. He's one of the twelve. He's one of those who are chosen. And even in Acts, when it refers, you know, before the choosing of Matthias, before the, the you know, Paul's apostleship, after Judas's betrayal, guess what? They're still talking about the 12 apostles. It's not like, oh, he's, he's counted out. His name is Judas. His name is Judah. Right? Another name for Israel, for a tribe in Israel. And like the, the chosen tribe, his chosenness. He's chosen for this very purpose, it says. But isn't that precisely why Israel is chosen? That she too would reject Yahweh. And certainly the decision of Pilate, the role of Herod, the work of Rome, they're all important in this handing over, but these are doing what we expect them to do. Remember that the power of handing over, where does it ultimately lie? It ultimately lies with Satan. It's this handing over that Satan will use about his own kingdom. I will give you his, you know, this is in the temptation of, of Jesus. I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me. And I can hand it over to whomever I wish. There's no question where the principalities and powers of this world derive their power. But in the Jews, in the high priest, in Judas, and the apostles, we come to understand that the handing over is precisely the sin Jesus is confronting. Something as, you know, insignificant as a kiss, as inconsequential as 30 pieces of silver, as trifling as a little greed sets the more important forces of Israel and Rome into no to notion. 
But the kiss, as Karl Barth puts it, attests and seals again the fellowship of the perpetrator with Jesus. That is, the darkness to be penetrated, the orientation toward death which needs overcoming, the evil to be defeated, cuts right through the apostles. And it's represented by Judas. So Judas is not only of Judah and Israel, but is of Jesus and the apostles. And it's precisely this proximity to Jesus that serves to identify the gravest depth of sin. He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Our sin, I believe, at its root is the sin of Judas. It's the sin of the Jews to hold back a little, to avoid the extravagance of Mary, who poured out her wealth and filled the house, filled the world with the odor of sacrifice. So yes, Judas is the rejected one. Judas is perhaps the pot fashioned for this role. But Judas' role is the role of Israel. And Israel's rejection of the Messiah is the world's rejection. And it is precisely this rebellion addressed in Jesus' confrontation with Judas. Judas is fulfilling the treachery depicted in Zechariah 11, in which the sheep of Israel are pictured as standing in solidarity against the good shepherd. And the good shepherd here is just God. The good shepherd, God himself, is sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the people of Israel and Judah are handed over to the shepherds, which would bring on their slaughter. Judas, handing over the Messiah, brings on his slaughter, right? Brings on his suicide. But this handing over is always suicidal. It is always self-destructive. In Judas, we encounter the masochistic, self-destructive death drive that is at work in sin. Judas is consistently depicted as devil-possessed. Jesus says he is the devil. After the morsel of the Last Supper is handed to him, you know, Satan, it says, then entered into him. And after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately where? into the night the darkness here is the representation of darkness Paul when he talks about the betrayal he will connect it to he was betrayed at night that is it's the darkness the darkness is descending but the point is not that Judas you know is alone bears the sin of handing Jesus over Jesus also identifies Peter with, he says, when Peter says, no, Lord, he says, get behind me, Satan. So the sin of handing over Jesus, it's focused on Judas. Peter and the apostles, though, participate, Israel, Judah, the Jews, they've all played their part. But Judas seems to represent what Israel had always done. The Israelites would hand Joseph over. They would, like Esau, sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. In the midst of the trial, they literally are buying and selling the betrayal of Jesus. 
They proclaim King Caesar, the God King Caesar, is their only king. The strange thing of these people who would claim to have a theocracy in which God reigns, they reject God for Caesar. As Jesus says, the tradition, your tradition, has nullified. The word tradition here is the same thing as that which has been handed down, handed over, has nullified your religion. Theirs is Yahweh religion without Yahweh. It's messianic religion in which they would kill the Messiah. But this sin is perhaps distilled in Judas. And uh, it's that that is addressed in the economy of salvation. So the very point and substance of salvation is found in Jesus being handed over. Right? Same word. Who hands him over ultimately? God, it says, handed Jesus over. Um, Not as an extension of the darkness, but to dispel the darkness. To overcome death. To free the captives. Who, by the way, Paul says, have been handed over because of their own lust. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them in Romans. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is always what this is about. The lie and the lust of the first couple is repeated in their progeny. And this seems to have culminated in the son of perdition. Another name for Judas. Who would sell Jesus for 30 coins. So it's precisely in the midst of this handing over. Paul says that. God has delivered him over for us all. That is, the confrontation between Jesus and Judas is precisely the point where the light confronts the darkness, where the devil would do his worst, where evil would kill the Son of Glory, and where God would absorb this handing over. He would defeat it. He would reverse it. So in a sense, it's the situation between Judas and Jesus. It's a heightened version of the situation between Jesus and all men. Between Jesus and all of us. And maybe this is illustrated. This is my final point. It's illustrated in the person who would take Judas's point, place rather. The place of Judas is taken by one who was handing over Christians to be imprisoned and killed. This one takes Judas' place and is taking up precisely where Judas left off. That's why he calls himself the chief of sinners. And of course we're talking about Paul the Apostle due to his persecution of the church. Though the fate of Judas is not spelled out, the one who considers himself, Paul is saying, I'm guilty, I'm guiltier than Judas. And yet, I am worthy to be counted an apostle. The one who is rejected, the one who is handed over to sin, through Christ being handed over, he becomes the one who would deliver Christ to the Gentiles. Same word, by the way. Jesus is handed over. Now, though, he's delivered as part of the gospel. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. How one is oriented to this deliverance is determinative of whether he stands with Judas or Jesus. And the difference between the sin of deliverance and the salvation accomplished through deliverance is found in the subject and object of the deliverance. Where Christ is the object separated out and delivered to be killed, this is the work of the betrayer. This is the work of the devil. This one separates himself out from the death of Christ and refuses, as Judas did, as Peter did, as the apostles did, to take up the cross in the immediate you know, arrest of Jesus. You know, maybe we could say there's a whole theology founded on this sort of betrayal. It's a theology that would say Christ died so that I do not have to. And we find the Judas among us where we would sacrifice the other for ourselves. When religion would oppress for the greater good. I believe this is godless religion. It's Yahweh religion without Yahweh. So where Christians stand with the oppressors against the refugees, against the poor, against the homeless, against the dispossessed, against the jobless. This is Christianity emptied of Christ. This is the Christ killers trampling the cross of Christ in the name of Christ. Here is the sin worse than Judas. Here is those who would crucify Christ again. On the other hand, when we identify with the crucified, the oppressed, the poor, then we are in a position to tell about the crucified. The one who delivers Christ in this manner, and that's Paul's word here, I delivered unto you. This one would, Paul says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down, turned over to the saints. And so Paul pictures himself as dying daily, as completing the death of Jesus in his own body, that he might deliver Christ to the Gentiles. The I, you know, this is Paul's point, that stood with Judas, the I that was the persecutor, that delivered those over, has been himself crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, And the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Delivered himself up for me. So we either deliver ourselves up or we deliver Christ up. We hand ourselves over in selfless, extravagant sacrifice or we hand Christ over. Let's say.